It's Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Um, it's a beautiful day. I'm, I'm going to go swimming in a minute. Everything's good. I've had a nice quiet week um, and an avalanche of marking arrives on Monday. So I feel like I've been having a charmed existence this week and it's all going to change next week. Although I love the course, it's the LSE course on activism. I've got about 170 bits of different uh, things to mark coming in next week. So um, suddenly I'm going to be chained to my desk and doing the uh, the necessary but not but grinding work of reading all their essays and blogs and vlogs and everything else. So I started the week with the links I liked. Um, the one I'd pick up is um, some research that uh, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine for COVID was 97% publicly funded. So this echoes some of the work that Mariana Matucato has done on iPhones and so on, showing that some of these things which are held up as kind of miracles of private sector research and development turn out to have been massively publicly funded. Um, so the reason why this matters is because if it's publicly funded, the argument for allowing pharmaceutical companies to have patent rights in the middle of a health emergency is even weaker than it was anyway. Um, this is public funding, so it should be public knowledge and it should be available for public good. Um, and the obvious question is, I th my understanding is that AstraZeneca is selling it at zero profit. Some of the other vaccines like Pfizer are making mega bucks out of this um, and and keeping keeping the knowledge to themselves. Surely we need a people's vaccine. We need a different approach which opens up access to these life-saving uh, drugs um, as quickly and as cheaply as possible so that everybody, not just those with money, can benefit. Uh, there were some other more light-hearted things on the links I liked, but that was the one I wanted to pick up about. I really want to see more comparative analysis of what the different drugs companies are doing and who's the good guys and who's the bad guys. And that's the kind of thing that the People's Vaccine Campaign is doing, I believe. The second and third posts of the week were a two-parter on a really important new paper. Um, so as people who follow the blog know, I've been talking about adaptive management quite a lot. I've written a few papers about it. Um, it's this idea that um, rather than having a rigid plan which you then roll out and implement, you need to have a kind of ability to adjust as you go, learn, adapt, um, think on your feet and be much more nimble and agile about how you respond to a shifting situation or to a shifting or to your own improving understanding of that situation. So that's been bubbling away for a few years um, and I've been part of the crowd thinking and banging on about it. Um, but it's been rather dominated by academics and think tank people. And um, in a lot of those conversations, there's been a lot of generalizations and not much practical advice. One person who's always complained about that is Graham Teskey, who is a former DFID bigwig who now works at a management consultant called ABT in Australia. And he's always saying, come on, you know, give me practical guides. I'm, I, I don't want to hear another big takedown of aid, traditional aid methods. I want to know what to do differently. And he's obviously got a bit uh, tired of waiting because he has written it with Lavinia Terrell, also of ABT. And I think it's going to be a really significant document. So the paper is called Implementing Adaptive Management. Is there an emerging practice? And the interesting thing is it just spends 16 pages summarizing the usual you know, discussion about why you need it uh, uh, um, uh, yeah, uh, uh, why it's better than rigid sort of linear uh, uh, management approaches. They come up with a catchy new acronym, PILLAR, 
politically informed, locally led and adaptive responses. And uh, my experience is that those kind of catchy acronyms usually take quite a few beers and meals and, and just sort of throwing ideas around before they're arrived at. And Graham confirmed that both beers and margaritas were involved. Um, what they do is then take um, the, a model I helped develop with uh, Angela Christie of three blobs, three subcategories of adaptive management. Adaptive governance, which is basically what the donor, uh, how the donor manages things. Adaptive programming, which is how the big head office of the management consultant or the INGO manages things. And then adaptive delivery, which is how people on the ground manage things. Each of those have got to work differently to make the adaptive management model work. So I was very flattered when they when they they designed their advice around those three blobs, but they've added some important ones. At the top end, they've added procurement. If you're you know a, a major donor and you're interviewing people uh, who to to run a particular program, how do you spot the difference between real adaptive managers and people who just learn to talk the talk, the bullshitters? So some really useful advice for procurement. And then at the other end, how do you do monitoring, evaluation and learning around this as part of the project cycle? So I think they've taken the, the three blobs and expanded it in a useful way. Um, and I'll read out their conclusion uh, for that first 16 page chunk. Operationalizing adaptive management, what we have called pillar, is conceptually difficult, politically risky and organizationally challenging. However, given what we have learned about complexity, systems theory, competing interests and incentives, changing policy contexts, and the sheer unpredictability of individual and collective human behaviour, it seems to these authors at least that there are two options. Either we accept the challenges and embrace pillar, or we resign ourselves to the likelihood of continued programme underperformance or failure. So that's pretty, you know, basically there's no choice. We've got to do this. It's difficult. We've got to do it. Um, it's, so it's by some distance the most practical guide uh, to these kind of approaches, adaptive management, thinking, working politically, doing development differently. Lots of, you know, with lots of different slogans, but with very uh, high degree of overlap. But I have some misgivings <clears throat> and I've discussed these before on the blog. So the aid sector is a funny beast. It only seems to be able to absorb new ideas by turning them into a code, a toolkit, a set of best practice guidelines. And that's what they that's what Graham and Lavinia have done. You know, the, and then you can train new people, you can share knowledge, you can check whether people are doing the right thing, you can evaluate them, you know, all sorts of things. But what if the essence of adaptive management is throw away your toolkits, study the system, dance with the system, adapt, respond, improvise. Can you have a toolkit which teaches you to improvise? And I got real doubts about this because I think it can easily, you know, codification can take power away from people on the front line and into the hands of professional adaptive managers who talk all the jargon, you know, who've, who've got um, Graham and Lavinia's toolkits in front of them. And that's actually the exact opposite of what's needed, which is to empower people on the front line to, you know, improvise and be entrepreneurs. So I hope that when people use this guide, they're able to follow the spirit of adaptive management, not just the letter of these toolkits. So then I did a second part because it was you know, a big, important paper. It didn't really fit in one blog. So the next day I, I summarized the 15 guidance notes, which um, have all sorts of really handy things, you know, worksheets, templates, 
reporting, how to report on things, how to record them, which will save people loads of time and reinventing things which other people have already done. It picks up some of the best things from some of the existing toolkits and references them. So yeah, it's very helpful. And then my conclusion is, so will these guidance notes sharpen up the work of people genuinely committed to managing adaptively or make it easier for charlatans to adaptive wash their work? And I think it's going to be both. You know, the people who get it will find lots here that they can draw on in their day-to-day -day efforts. But the charlatans will be able to borrow all the documents and terminology without actually thinking very hard about what they're doing. It may have some subliminal effect even on them, but who knows. But it just seems to be unavoidable. Toolkitization, turning things into toolkits, does seem to be the only way the aid sector can scale up new approaches. So let's hope, you know, uh, let's hope this one works. And I know that Graham and Lavinia would love any comments and feedback, uh, especially if people are trying to apply these guidelines on how they can be improved. Final post of the week, a really nice piece of research from LSE, from the Centre on Public Authority in International Development, which I'm part of. Um, how did research on chiefs' courts in South Sudan influence famine early warning systems? So one of the jobs I've been given at CPAD is to look at some of their bits of research and to try and document how, what kind of impact it's had and how that impact took place. And so I looked, at, I, yeah, I looked around at some of the bits of research and this one jumped out. It's by an uh, anthropologist called Naomi Pendle, who's been working in South Sudan for more than a decade. Um, and what it shows is that policy impact doesn't always arise as a primary aim of research. Actually, Naomi was doing something totally different. Um, she was researching South Sudan's local justice system and has been doing for 10 years plus. Um, she had no intention of, of you know, talking to the aid business or, or changing the aid system. And yet that work has had a significant impact on the World Food Programme's warning systems for famine. And so let me tell you how it happened. OK, so... Um, the WFP, the World Food Programme, conducts large surveys in South Sudan twice a year to assess hunger, which is chronic, but every now and then tips over into famine. Now, during a famine in 2017, Naomi was, came across an intriguing aspect of the local chief-run courts. So these are courts run by traditional leaders called chiefs. Um, and, they, and in a famine, they, they switch function and become what are called hunger courts. So these had actually been noticed by a South Sudanese uh, author, Luca Biong, in 1990. But as of 2017, when Naomi uh, was looking at them, um, the aid community had given them no attention. So, what she, so I talked to her and she said, what we came across by chance was the courts in one part of South Sudan were being used to redistribute food to prevent hunger during famine periods. Local chiefs' courts are part of government structures. They suspend all but the most serious cases, such as murders, during a famine and become hunger courts. Courts rule on how to redistribute within clans, sometimes doing so by force. So their job is to make sure that everybody shares equally in the, in the food that there is. Right? But the crucial thing was she found in 2018, we found that the hunger courts responded, flipped over into this hunger court function in May 2018 even though humanitarian agencies didn't notice the famine-level hunger until July. So two months before the supposed early warning system of the aid business detected famine, the hunger courts had already set up shop and were already working. So what they've got is a more, is an earlier early warning system, which is, more, which is closer to the ground. 
So Naomi thought this was interesting. Uh, and then the key point is she's a networker. She, uh, she's very sociable. She chats to people. So she contacted friends and contacts in Juba, uh, working for the World Food Programme and for the UN, and set up meetings to tell them that she, what she was finding. You know, they, and she says, they know I know the area well. So, so the, the UN asked yeah, whether famine was imminent. And I said, look, the chiefs have known for months. Why is this news to you? So the outcome was that the World Food Programme asked Naomi to include questions on hunger courts in this twice a year survey that they do. Uh, Naomi drafted the, che the text, but now she's working um, with the UN looking at how hunger courts can be used more generally as an early warning system. So then what I got interested in was, OK, so what, how did she do this? You know, what's, the, how does, what's her personal advocacy style? And this is what she said. Workshops are fine, but often talking over a glass of wine at the weekends works better. Um, the key lesson is to invest in relationships. Longevity of working in a country also helps. You know, I've known some of the people for many years. Some foreigners stay around for a long time or leave and then come back in more senior positions and they know me. For those who are new, me being attached to the LSE helps. Um, but you have to have interesting things to share. People are stuck in offices in Juba, the capital, and desperate to have a sense of what is going on outside the capital. And what's interesting is that one of the reasons she does it is because she needs to. There's a mutual benefit in this collaboration. The honest truth is that I need their logistical support, flights and stuff. So it makes sense for me to talk to them. I want to make sure they don't forget to put me on a flight out of the swamp. To do that, you have to tell them a bit about your research. So that's interesting. So that mutual dependence actually leads to a greater exchange. Um, so just sort of, you know, going back into the literature on how research has influence, I'd say what Naomi's impact demonstrates is the importance of personal networks, building relationships, working locally. So the fact that she has these specific knowledge about local conditions in South Sudan made her a very prized asset to people stuck in Juba. Involving policy targets upstream. She had the relationships. She was talking to them about her research. They knew what she was up to. And then when she found something interesting, they were more willing to hear. Very useful. So I've got five or six more of those case studies, which are going to be published over the next couple of months. So I will fill you in on those as they arise. I'm off for a swim. Have a great weekend. Um, talk to you soon. Bye.